Hello, and welcome to the Bread and Butter Bible Podcast. I'm Casey, and Kelsey will not be able to join us today because she is sick. We are currently in St. Vincent and the Grenadines in a little island called Myro. We came here to scout out this location and see if it would be a good place to do long-term missions. As you know, Kelsey and I are Bible-teaching missionaries, and we have a passion to be in one location long-term. That's 20 to 30 years or until we absolutely have to come back due to some crisis, such as the death of a family member or friend. So given that we are in a different location, I apologize if there's any extra background noise Um, At the location that we are currently staying at, there are lots of children. This place is full of life. Super fun. So down to business. For today's podcast and actually the next few, Kelsey and I will be on to 1 John. So this is an epistle written by John. And as you'll discover, we don't really know which John scholars are kind of split on this. In this episode, I'm going to cover the background information and the main idea of 1 John. So let's get into it. John talks about all kinds of things in his letter in 1 John. He talks about Antichrist or Antichrists. He talks about truth and love, and he talks about eternal life. And so this book can be quite confusing, but it's also quite simple. It's all about abiding with Christ. And we'll get more into that in just a minute here. So as far as the author, like I mentioned, there are many views on who wrote the epistle of 1 John. And I mean, when you're figuring out the author, you kind of have to figure out the audience too and the date. And all of these things actually go hand in hand. So who is the author? Well, he says some phrases that would help us figure out who he is. In 1 John 2 verse 1, uh, 2 verse 12, 2 verse 28, and 4 4, he uses the phrase little children to refer to his audience. And so that's not really much of a hint. Um, but in 2.6 and 2.17, and there are a few other verses, the author uses the term abide. So abide in Christ. This is kind of the idea here. And this is actually going to be found in John 15, which was written by John, one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus. And he's known as the beloved disciple, the one who reclined against Christ's side in John 13, 23. That verse says, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And John 13 goes on to, the the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loves, goes on to discover that Judas will betray Jesus. Okay, so... The author of 1 John uses the word abide, 
And we also have kind of established the side point that he seems to be very close to Jesus. And so he seems to know a lot about the benefits of being in Christ or being a Christian. And actually, this is where we find one of the main things. And it's actually a really important idea in 1 John. 1 John verse 5.13 says something that is very similar to the Gospel of John. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is actually very similar to John 20, verses 30 and 31. I'm flipping there right now. So John 20, 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the reason that John is writing 1 John is very similar to the reason he wrote the Gospel of John, because he is suggesting, and I, I believe he's right, that the moment you begin believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the truth, the life, and the only way to be reconciled with God the Father, that is the moment that you are justified in the words of Paul. But in the words of John, that is the moment that you begin having eternal life. So what this means, the theology of John that's been debated over years and years and years, I'll boil it way down for you. What this means is that Simply, you are a new creature and you begin new life when you begin to believe in Jesus. So all of that said, we're answering the question, who is the author of this epistle, the author of 1 John? And it really seems to be John, based on his use of the word abide throughout chapter 2. Uh, some references for that are 2.6 and 2.17. Um, and then also in 5.13, he uses a really similar phrase that he used in the end of the Gospel of John. Um, really, the, he, he expresses the purpose of this letter is so that people may know Christ and have eternal life um, in some variation of those kinds of words. So that's who the author is. And what about the dating of the book? The, the epistle seems to have actually a very similar message to the Gospel of John. So I kind of think, you know, anyone could assume that it's written around a really similar time period. But when is that? If you were to open a Bible dictionary like Tyndale or Nelson's or the Archaeological Study Bible or the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, just a few common references with liberal and conservative views, then you would find that Scholars are all over with the dating of anything John has written. Same with Paul, same with actually a lot of books. So one thing we have to do when we research is find a nice middle ground. Um, and I really think that there's one historical figure that really gives us a lot of clarity as to when John would have written these books. And talking about 1 John, when would he have written them? In the text, John addresses false teachers, 
2, 18 through 25 as a warning against false teachers. He also addresses these themes of darkness and light in 1, 5 through 11. That's going to be a lot like what we see in the Gospel of John. For instance, John chapter 3 talks about darkness and light. Um, and then John also calls his audience, and we're, we're referencing this in, in the guise of trying to figure out the date still, but he does call his audience little children over and over and over again. So that could actually give us an idea of when the book was written, because it could mean that John was fairly older or um, an elder of the church. And so he's using endearing language like little children. Another similar tie-in to the authorship, we have this word abide sprinkled all throughout 1 John. I think that's also a hint at when it was written. It, it seems like this book was written probably around the time of the Gospel of John or years later to remind readers and hearers um, of the main message of the Gospel of John. So it's either a huge gap or it's right around the same time that the Gospel of John was written. So the question is, how do we narrow all of this down? How do we find out when the book was written? It seems like one concrete thing we can go off of is there seems to be a real warning against false teachers, 2, 18 through 25. So I think that the dating is probably going to be attributed to some time where John is going to be addressing heresy. Uh, the kind of heresy that John dealt with is really similar to what was referenced um, by Polycarp and Irenaeus. So Polycarp is one of John's disciples, and Irenaeus was a bishop in Turkey. So here's where things get interesting, and I'm just going to connect a bunch of dots for you. In 120 AD, at the earliest a man named Irenaeus comes into the world. And Irenaeus would become a bishop over the churches in Turkey. That includes Ephesus. So the leader of the whole region in ancient Turkey. And Irenaeus ended up passing away right around 200 AD. So Irenaeus was influenced heavily by the works of people like John. But John died in the early 100s AD. So how did Irenaeus hear about John? Well, John had this disciple named Polycarp. And Polycarp would have told Irenaeus all about John. So these are the, the dots that we're connecting. These are real historical people. So let me just recap this again so that you can understand what I'm saying. Because I know that listening, it, it gets kind of fuzzy sometimes. So John was the last disciple to die, the last of Jesus' disciples to die. From what we understand, he was the only disciple who died of natural causes, just old age. John, he passed away in Ephesus around 100 AD, sometime between 100 and 110. John had a very close disciple named Polycarp, and John worked a lot with Polycarp. He shared a lot of his insights with Polycarp. And Polycarp told Irenaeus all about John. 
So the information that I'm about to tell you was formally recorded by Irenaeus, but it's, it's very, very close to John. And this has to do with the dating of the book. When was first John written? That's the question I'm trying to answer right now. Okay, so here's the story that John told Polycarp and Polycarp told Irenaeus and Irenaeus recorded for all of history to know. Around the 80s AD, this emperor comes into Rome. His name is Domitian, not Dalmatian, Domitian. Um, and he did not like Christians. Actually, most of Rome was opposed to Christianity because Rome understood the Christians were trying to set up a new kingdom, not realizing it's the kingdom of God, a kingdom not of this world. So Rome felt threatened politically, but also Christians caused a lot of debacles, debates. Um, they disturbed a lot of the peace between all the people groups in Rome who all had differing opinions. So there's basically one rule that you don't break in ancient Rome. You never, ever, ever disturb the peace. And that's what Christians did a lot of the times. It's not like the Christians were going around banging on doors and disturbing the peace. It's more so the groups who opposed Christians, uh, they kind of sullied the, the name of the Christians. So we don't have to get into all those groups. That's very complicated. But what you need to know is that in the time of Domitian, 80s AD, and even before that, Christians did not have a likable reputation in Rome. Um, so Domitian comes in, 80s AD, John is this popular Christian leader, you know, similar to the likes of Paul. So Domitian does not like John. And here's the legend. Here's why John is such a legend and why our faith is so real. Domitian tries to kill John. He tries to boil him in oil, but John isn't hurt. He's not hurt at all. God keeps him completely safe, completely unharmed. So that didn't work. Domitian attempts to send John away to work camps, let him work himself to death for no purpose. We'll break his spirit and then break his life. Um, so Domitian tries to send John to work camps, but John never gets tired. He's simply unkillable. So the last resort, the mission, exiles John on this island that you've probably heard of, the island of Patmos. That's where John had the revelation, where the book of Revelation comes from. John had the revelation there on Patmos. And then after that, the legend goes that, uh, you know, 96 AD, Domitian comes out of power. A new emperor comes in and John is actually released from Patmos. And where does he move to? nowhere but the famous Ephesus. So Ephesus is sort of the cultural hotspot of Rome. It defines the thinking patterns of Rome. A lot of the worldview of Rome came out of Ephesus. It's going to be much like Hollywood today when we're talking about how Hollywood influences the U.S. That's how, well, and a lot of the West actually, and a lot of the world, that's how Ephesus influenced Rome. So Ephesus was just a cultural hotspot. So John moved there to live out the rest of his days because he believed that he just needed to preach the gospel to these people. 
and that would end up influencing all of Rome. So this is the story that John passed down to Polycarp and Polycarp passed down to Irenaeus and Irenaeus published for the world uh, via other church historians. So pretty cool. That's actually pretty trusted history. So what does this all mean? Why did I go over all this for you? It means that John ended up in Ephesus around late 90s to early 100s AD. And that is when I and a lot of scholars think that he wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, It's when myself and a lot of scholars think that he wrote the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And, And... you guys, we will get to Second and Third John in time. Many people think that that was written by someone else because it's addressed from the Elder John. Um, but don't you think that a disciple of Jesus, an unkillable disciple, a leader of the church, uh, would be called an elder? Yeah, I think so. So we don't like to say that anyone's wrong or that they have... A, uh, that they're not smart enough with their view. They are really smart people who just believe that there was a different John writing 2nd and 3rd John. And I actually love hearing opinions like that. But as for me, I'm going to teach that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John was written by the same guy, John, the beloved disciple, the disciple who reclined against Jesus' side in John chapter 13. And, and in John chapter 13, he is called the one whom Jesus loved. Okay, so let's get down to business here. We have the dating covered of the book. It was written right around 100 AD. And we have the author of the book. The author of 1 John is John, the beloved disciple. But who was the book written to? I'm not going to belabor the point here at all. It was written to the people of Ephesus. The text mentions little children... This is going to be in 2.1, 2.12, 2.28, 4.4, and 5.21. We see these addresses. Uh, John is writing to little children. And these are going to be believers, probably believers that he has influence over. So in 2.11 through 14, we see a bit more specified audience. We see fathers, children, and young men addressed. And then kind of near the end of the book, 3.21 and 4.1, John calls his audience beloved. So he's talking to beloved people. And I, I, I think we should ask the question, why is John using the term beloved? So this is actually something quite deep. And this is why we have a whole episode dedicated to just background information on 1st John. Uh, You might hear this again if we ever do the Gospel of John, but John, the beloved disciple, wrote the Gospel of John. And maybe you've never noticed this, but in all of these books that have his name on it in our Bibles, he doesn't actually address himself. It's not like a letter from Paul where Paul says, hey, it's me, Paul, writing to you. Uh, John doesn't do that. He just kind of gets right into it. And as you noticed in 1 John, he starts off with this mini gospel talking about the logos, the word, 
does the same thing in the Gospel of John. He starts right off the bat in the Gospel of John with the word logos. So here's the connection I want to make for you. In the Gospel of John, he only mentions of himself that he is the beloved disciple. That's going to be in chapter 13. At the end of the Gospel of John, the last chapter, you'll see that there's a reference to this beloved disciple again. Um, and, and the question is, why in the Gospel of John does he write this about himself? He says, I'm the beloved disciple. That seems kind of uh, conceited, doesn't it? To say that he's the only beloved disciple, no one else is. Well, that's not exactly what John is saying. By using that term, that title, beloved disciple, he's actually suggesting that Christ transformed him, that Christ made him into the beloved disciple, despite who he was before. So here are some things we know about John. In Mark 9, 38, John instructed a man not to cast out demons in Jesus' name because the man wasn't part of the group who was traveling with Jesus. Uh, that, I think, shows a bit of immaturity. Uh, in Luke 9, 54, after Samaritan villagers refused to accept Christ and his disciples, James, the brother of John, and John, they offered to Jesus to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. And this is hilarious. It's also just immature. <laughs> it's really funny. Also famously in Mark 10, 35 through 40, uh, John and his brother James, they asked Jesus if they could reign with him on his right and his left. When Jesus asked them back, if they could undergo the same kind of suffering as him, they both really believed that they could. So they had no idea what they were signing up for. They were just pure, full of faith, full of zeal, and maybe not full of planning. Um, but this is what Jesus, Jesus loved him. And the kind of guy who John was, actually, the Gospels, hmm, they're pretty hard on John. But in Luke 5, 9 through 10, there's a scene of John simply being in awe of Christ's authority. And that is the, the man who is reclining against Jesus in John uh, 13. And said again in the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 21 there. Um, so he was in awe of Christ's authority. And, and that's what Jesus cares about, like when we are in awe of him. So this has everything to do with the identity of John. And right now we're answering the question in the Gospel of John, why does he say, why does he call himself the beloved? Isn't that conceited? And we'll, we'll talk about what this has to do with 1 John as well, when John calls the church beloved as well. So... So the answer to the question, why is John calling himself John the Beloved? Well, he, he doesn't really seem to have lovable character in the, other, in the other Gospels. He's really tempestuous. He's not super mature, uh, very forthcoming, very outright, doesn't seem to think before speaking, and doesn't seem to be very godly altogether. Um, 
But the whole point, and if you read the Gospel of John in one or two sittings, um, you you will clearly see that this this man, this author, is just so close to Jesus. Um, he reveals a lot about Jesus that is not talked about in the other Gospels. And he's just like locationally close to Jesus throughout the gospel. So what's suggested here is that being close to Jesus, because John was able to do that, that's why he was loved. And he owes, he owes everything that he is, all of his character to the love of Jesus, because he is the beloved of Christ, or, or more accurately, because John is a beloved of Christ, None of these other character traits matter. And actually, John ended up being super mature. He has quite the transformation later on after the Gospels, and he just becomes this awesome, humble leader, the kind of guy that we would all like to mentor us. Um, and he says he owes all of that to the love of Christ. So then if we go back to First John in First John 3.21 or 4.1, he calls his audience beloved. Hmm. So don't you think that perhaps John is seeing this audience as people whom Christ loves? Don't you think that he is seeing the audience as people who actually owe everything that they are to Jesus Christ? Do you think that John is seeing through all of their mishaps, their character defects, if you will. I think he is. I think that's why he is calling them beloved. And he uses the term at least three times in First John. So this is something that John is doing. He's sort of passing off the mantle, and he's really suggesting forthright uh, that anyone who follows Jesus is his beloved and their negative traits, they don't define them, and they don't have to actually have those traits anymore. Okay? So this is what's fascinating about John being... We're talking about the recipient of First John. So John lived in Ephesus. And it seems like this letter is addressing heresy, and Ephesus was full of heresy. So this is just the, the big idea here is that the church, when they believe in Christ, in the heretic, when they believe in Christ, when they see Christ for who he really is, those heresies, they just fade into the background. Um, and we ought to still be cautious that we're not making up new theologies, that we're not making up new things. We don't want to become her heretics, and we don't want to dismiss them. But John seems to believe that when a person sees Christ for who he is, that heresy fades away, and, and that person becomes someone whom Christ loves. So let's actually talk about some of the heresy that's going around in Ephesus around the late 90s to early 100s AD. We have dualism. So dualism is basically the belief, it's a Greek belief, that uh, the easiest way I could describe it is body is bad, spirit is good or the things done in the body do not impact the spirit. So dualists, Greek dualists, see that there is 
they, they would affirm that there is a separation between what is spiritual and what is physical. And this is different, believe it or not, this is different than the traditional Christian view, than the traditional Bible view. The Bible affirms that spirit and physical, spirit and flesh are one, and they've always been connected. Um, it's actually quite the view. If you want to learn more about that topic, the only thing I can recommend to you right now is The Bible Project. And I would just look up their podcast about the Spirit, um, and you will surely find that podcast that explains all of that to you. But this is all this to say is that uh, a heresy going around in Ephesus at the time that John was writing is dualism. The belief that the body and the spirit are not connected. So a dualist um, may see no negative consequences for things like drunkenness, promiscuity, um, grotesque acts, and anything like that. When I say promiscuity, I'm talking sexual immorality of any kind. So any kind of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Um, and dualists just would dismiss all that because they would say that what is done in the body does not affect the spirit. So the other, the other pendulum of dualism is that you, you could tend to sort of whip your body in line. So you either have that really liberal, licentious view or you have a super conservative view where you believe that your, your body has to be completely in line. So these people are what we would call ascetics or they, pra they practice asceticism, which is just denying their body or being very harsh on their body for the sake of spiritual enlightenment. So that's the two like polar ends of dualism and in Ephesus, we actually saw the more so like, I'm not going to care what I do with my body it has no effect on this, what is spiritual. So some branches of dualism that we, that John would have seen in Ephesus was docetism and Serinthianism. So docetism was a belief that Jesus was fully spirit. They would call him a phantasm, just a fully spiritual being, and that the things that he did here on earth had no effect for the physical world, no effect for people. Serinthianism, on the other hand, is the belief that Jesus was just fully a man and that the spirit of God descended on him at his baptism and left before his death. So Jesus was just a man. There was nothing special about him. And what you realize throughout reading the Gospel of John and the letter 1 John, which is what we're focused on right now, what you realize is that when you read this little letter, you see John really hammering the fact that Jesus is fully man and fully God. He's fully physical, fully spiritual. And maybe you'll notice that more in the background, but John is just defending the character of Christ because John believes, 
if we go to 1 John 5.13, that if you believe in the name of the Son of God, in other words, if you believe he is who he says he is, then you can be certain that you have eternal life. So John's combating all these heresies so that people may believe and have eternal life. And as we're wrapping up this episode, I'm just going to go over the reason written, the main idea that John is trying to promote, the reason that he's writing, and a verse that ties everything together. So this is our summary, and you'll find that a lot of the things I've been saying I'm about to repeat right now. So why did John write this epistle? Why did he write 1 John? 1 John was addressed to oppose Gnostic heresies about Jesus Christ in particular. So particularly, the letter cleared up heresies about Christ's divinity and his humanity. So John is going to be writing to people who don't believe that Christ was fully divine and fully human. That's why he's writing, to help them understand that Christ is fully divine and fully human. And then what is the main idea? Well, right off the tail of that reason written, the main idea is that Jesus is the divine son of God who is fully divine and also fully human. And whoever accepts that he is the son of God has eternal life. Basically, another way of putting this main idea, really short and sweet, is that if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he's fully man, fully God, he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe all that, then that's the moment you start living eternal life. That's the moment you are new creation. And what's a verse that sums all of this up? Well, it's one that we've gone over a few times, actually, in this episode. It's 1 John 5, 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I'll read that one more time, and you just let it sink in. John is saying in 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. So this is the verse that ties everything together in 1 John. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of Man, Son of God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then that's when you become a new creation. That's when eternal life starts for you. You become an eternal being. However, if you believe in heresies, uh, or if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then you're you're not in the eternal life club yet. Um, and I think, you know, every one of our episodes, we try to have some measure of application um, and even, even in an episode like this where, where I'm mainly doing background information, Kelsey is recovering from being sick, um, and this is just a bit different. We're setting up for a longer series on First John, if you will. I still have application. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about right now, 
the amount of friends that I've had and influencers that I've seen who are just people who have sworn away God. They, they just, to their very bones, they would say that God does not exist. The Bible is a fairy tale. And, you know, Christians are just silly to have this faith. Um, and, and those people that I know and the influencers that I've seen, I would say they have pretty decent reasons for, for what they believe. Um, reasons like seeing a, a Christian nationalist or um, that, that is to say a Christian who just believes God's going to prosper the, the nation <laughs> um, that they live in or, or people who are very judgmental and, and have hurt my friends or the influencers. Um, I think I think the reason that actually a lot of people don't believe in Christianity is because they see the judge the judgmentalness of Christians, um, and as we know, humanity gets more and more sensitive, um, and then we we have these cycles where we have a tough generation, but then we get sensitive, 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 and then tough. So right now we're in a period where people are going to be more sensitive, and so they're really going to perceive our judgment and they're going to perceive that as a blaring lack of empathy and they're not going to want to be in this church. They're not going to want to be in this body of Christ. Um, so as we're on this topic, how does this relate to this verse that ties everything together in 1 John 5.13? And my summary of that is, you've heard me say this, I'll say it again, is that if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of man, son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, that is the moment you, you begin having eternal life. So, so how, how does this topic that I've brought up relate to that? Well, I, I have a lot of friends. Um, and I've seen a lot of influencers on like YouTube, TikTok, and whatnot. They do this thing where they say, if God is real, then I can just bow my head, close my eyes and say, Jesus, I accept you into my heart as my Lord and Savior. And, and then magically they, they think that they're going to have this feeling that they're going to just know and understand that they're saved. They're going to have a burning in their chest, uh, as some of the scriptures say, or they're going to feel the Holy Spirit. Or they're going to have the scales lifted off their eyes like Saul did in Acts. Um, so what John is saying here is actually not that. John is saying, now if, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you're, if you're not messing around here and saying these things as a joke that Jesus is who he says he is, but if you actually believe that he is the son of God, that's when you are saved. So, so this, is, this is really important. When does salvation begin? It's when we actually have faith, when we, when we acknowledge that Jesus is really who he says he is. I want you to think about this and think about people who you know and, and even take it to a personal level. Just reflect on this. Do you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I'm not here to question your salvation or anything like this, but I want to actually propose something to you. I want to encourage you to build your faith right now with what I'm about to say. 
And, and I want you to be able to share this too. I want you to be able to share everything in this podcast. That's the whole reason that we do this. So if you are doubtful about Jesus, is he who he says he is? I want you to consider something that we've said before. There was a famous Roman historian named Tacitus. He wrote in the time of Nero and thereafter, so like from the 60s onwards, thereabouts. And he was one real historian who recorded that Jesus was risen, (laughs) that the tomb was empty. And this guy Tacitus, he, he was not a believer, not at all. Um, so he had no reason to write this stuff. He was actually just recording this out of sheer curiosity and mystery and just just to report, to, to report and share with Rome. Oh, this, this man, Jesus, he's not in his tomb and he actually is nowhere to be found. He must have risen. And so Tacitus, he did record that. And, and I want you to, to consider also that the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and Acts is an eyewitness account of the Spirit of God pushing the Gospel forward to the ends of the earth. And that same Spirit of God lives in you today if you've accepted Jesus Christ. So if you're doubting at all, just know, know these things. And if you're doubting and you are saved, Ask the Holy Spirit that lives in you to confirm your faith. Ask God to bring you people to help answer your questions and reach out. Reach out to people who can actually answer the questions that you have. And that brings us to a close for today's podcast. So thank you all for joining me for the Bread and Butter Bible podcast. Next time... Kelsey will be with us and we'll get into the first segment of 1 John. So about chapter 1 into chapter 2 thereabouts. And we'll just start going through this book by observation, interpretation, and application. And we look forward to having all of you along for the ride. So thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time on the Bread and Butter Bible Podcast.